HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Subscribe today at southernfarmandgarden.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. It's a show where brilliant women in the food world share stories about their lives and careers. Today, I am thrilled to have on my show Andy McNichol. Andy is a partner in the literary department and a member of the Branded Lifestyle Group at William Morris Endeavor, which is a fancy way of saying she's an unbelievable (laughs) agent to the stars and, as it happens, also me, which means that I know that she is super talented. Uh, She's a problem solver, a negotiator, a communicator, but most of all, my takeaway from working with Andy is that she has impeccable instincts for identifying the stories that people want to tell and the stories that people want to hear. She's got a client roster of rock stars like, um, let's start with food, Chrissy Teigen, Mimi Thorison, Alice Shelley, and then lots and lots more. So I found a way to describe your role as an agent, but how do you describe your role as an agent? Um, sort of like a train conductor. Okay. Um, do you yeah. got a special hat? Yeah. Well, no, I have lots of special hats. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I always say what we do isn't brain surgery. You know, it's not that you need a certain education to do it. You don't need uh, to have a background in marketing or a background in economics. Or, But when you come to things... You really have to be able to listen to somebody. So what I do is listen and then try and effectuate what the person really wants to do or what the project needs to do. I don't know, because I feel like, you know, you listened to me with uh, my first book idea and your response was, that's not a really good idea for you. And you were totally right. So you listened to me, but you also were very um, empowered to say, no, I don't see that. It's not actually the right thing. So there's some overlay, right? Yes. You have to listen and then also hear what the person really wants to do. I heard that you wanted to write a book. 
And given that you are and were a very busy person, what's going to be a good use of that time for you? Because there is as much effort to put into something that doesn't work as there is to what does work. So I like to maximize things. So when I say I'm a train conductor, I like things to have a velocity. They have a speed that go forth and and complete, and it's your best foot forward. Because I truly believe in this like sort of hippy dippy spiritual way that like you only want to put forth energy that's going to have velocity to go towards the good, to go towards the doors that open. So that's what I'm listening for. Not necessarily this book idea or that TV show or this podcast or, but I'm trying to listen to the deeper thing the person said. You wanted to tell a story, and you had been deeply connected to food and to lifestyle your entire life and had gone through a personal um, situation. And how did those all tie together? And we came up with a book that I was incredibly happy to do, Mastering My Mistakes in the Kitchen, passionate about every step of the way. And I was so grateful to you for putting pushing me into, into that direction. But I was grateful for you for doing the work because I have those conversations with people sometimes where you're like, actually, tweak it this way. This is where the market's going or... And they don't take it on. Uh, my best scenarios with clients are when they listen and we have a conversation and then they come back weeks later, which you did, and find a new way into the idea on its head. And it's really, it's so fun. I think the, the other, we're going to stop talking about me, but the, <laughs> the other thing that um, I really enjoyed was your absolute, total and complete confidence. Once I told you the title of the book, you're like, that's the book. We can stop there. I mean, we had to keep going, but that was it. And I have noticed with your other clients, you also have that absolute certainty. Like with Chrissy Teigen, can you just talk about how did her book, her cookbook come about? Well, as everyone knows who's followed her, the six million folks who do, um, she's been blogging and talking about food for years. And as a real passionate eater. And I think that people uh, thought it was for show a little bit. They thought it was funny. But then you start reading her tags and you realize she is deep into this. So when we began working with IMG, um, WME and IMG merged, uh, she was one of the people that we were like, we have got to meet her. And we sat down, we went through all of her blogs that were about food, which were about a third of them at that time. Wow. And when you're looking at that kind of volume, you're like, you've already created a cookbook. And she's like, but I want to go deeper. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I was like, you know what? This is all you need. The authenticity of your voice, the fact that it has been since your childhood with your mother, it's how you connected to your Thai culture, and the fact that she cooked in that manner meant something to me. And her husband is also a great cook and eater. So it was all these ingredients that you couldn't deny that were there. And we decided to do something fun with her proposal and her... You know, what did you do? We actually... She wrote a letter to all the editors being like, this is me. This is how I feel about food. This is my favorite food. Come to my home and taste some of it. So we basically hosted small gatherings of a whole bunch of editors who came down at, at I can only times. imagine how many people would have said yes to that invitation. A lot of uh, people everybody. said yes. A lot of people said yes. But I think it was important for people to see her in the kitchen. They had sort of seen the photos of the food and they had seen her talk about food. Um, but 
people hadn't seen her in the kitchen yet. She wasn't on a Food Network show. Um, she doesn't do digital shows with cooking. This was a really personal thing. So we were like, okay, let's let's make it personal. And she did. She opened her kitchen. She opened her home. And people, how could you not fall in love with her? And her chicken wings are fantastic. So, <laughs> Is that um, your favorite recipe in the book? Um, actually, she has this like potato casserole thing and cravings that I'm obsessed with. Obsessed with. Made it for Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's that's, on the... That's, that's the true test. <laughs> it is. And did you go on her photo shoot at all? We did do... I was on her shoot. Yes. And what was that like? It was involved. I looked at, <laughs> I looked at the cast of characters and I thought, wow, that is um, a guarantee of either success or a lot of chaos. It was... She cared that much about it. And coming from a background where there were... She was very comfortable with photo shoots. We really were able to mix lifestyle and food and really have it be the best of both. And it was it was an amazing experience. I think um, Aubrey Pick was the photographer on that, and she she was amazing. She was amazing. And she wasn't starstruck? No. No, because we worked hard. I mean, we photographed every recipe in that book, which is unusual. That is unusual. And it was something that Chrissy felt very strongly about, that each recipe, you show the finished product. So we all went in knowing that. Uh And so, you know, you're committing to 150 shots. That's not easy. And some people were doubters. They they thought... She either that she didn't cook or she was doing it for show or it was yet another celebrity cookbook. How did you counteract that and why were you so sure? Well, knowing her and meeting her once, you know that she is not uh, she is not putting forth anything she is not truly. So it makes my job or anyone's job who works with her incredibly easy um, because she's very true to herself. That being said, she was also aware that people would be like, oh, you're a model, and oh, you know, you're in the food community. She worked her ass off, and every recipe has her in it, and every recipe is special. And uh, we had a wonderful editor in Francis Lamb, yeah. which I'm, you know well, and they had a wonderful collaboration process, and she had a wonderful collaborator in a, uh, a dean assessment. And we... It was a great team, and they worked their asses off. And we planned out. She has wonderful um, PR people. And we really planned out a strategy that would allow people, again, to see her cook. Um, So we did a big event with Samsung um, downtown. Again, not just a book event. She cooked, and we wanted it to be a full 60, you know, 360 experience. I wanted people to not just see. Now, what we didn't know is that she was going to be seven months pregnant when the book came out. Uh, But, you know, it just added to the fact that there was such joy and life. And and if she's out there, you know, day in, day out working and she was pregnant with her first child, she's in. She's all in. And and it responded. And her, her audience knows and trusts her and I think that's that's the real thing um especially with people online and people who are so well known digitally there is very little room to equivocate Mm -hmm. they can smell um when you're not being for real and and that is a different bond than you have with a television audience and it's a different bond in a book audience or in a magazine 
And you sort of have to play to that. You have to know that going in. Now, you've also worked with Alex Gornicelli, who is an extraordinary cook, writes flawless recipes, and is also on TV. Tell me, how did you begin working with Alex? Uh, Colleagues of mine uh, who are very deep into the Food Network, because, you know, about, sounds crazy, but about 10 to 12 years ago, that was a non-issue. You know, people didn't have careers on the Food Network, so... Once people started really going in that direction, um, we had a a very skilled television department that uh, sort of flagged talent, and Alex was one of them. She also had two restaurants in New York and was a real chef. Her mother is also an incredible book editor. So when a colleague of mine was like, oh, do you want to meet Alex Granichelli? I was like, of course. I worship her mother, Maria, and Alex took very kindly to that. She also is a very forthright... um, no bullshit kind of person, um, and I, I tend to like that in in clients and friends and people. I like <laughs> people who are authentically themselves. And she wrote this incredible book proposal for her first book, um, where she talked about her mother drying uh, ducks in, in the their kitchen. Room? Yeah, I think it's the dining room. Yeah, on the on the chandeliers uh, when she was doing the first sort of like big Chinese cookbook that Americans would have. And she cooked her way through it because Maria recipe tested all those recipes when she was a cookbook editor. So Alex grew up in this bizarre food scenario where there were (laughs) ducks and like meat sauce and scallions. It it was just a mess. And I was like, this is brilliant. Um, Who doesn't want to grow up like that? And her recipes are also so from the heart. I mean, every recipe you read, you feel... You know, it's a it's a piece of Alex's history. And she's a she, spectacular writer, and she's a spectacular chef, and she's a spectacular storyteller. And so all those three things together, she she does nightly with food. And I think it's so funny because like, you know, she's she's such a great judge on the Food Network, and Chopped is such a wonderful show, and it, it involves all of those things, sort of storytelling and cooking and recipes and. She, she's perfectly cut for what she's doing now. Yeah, and um, I love... There's some dishes at her restaurant that are among my favorite. Um, she does the most beautiful bread um, and meat, and she cares so much about the restaurant as well. I, she's one of those truly multi-talented individuals. So you often are working with extraordinary people of extraordinary fame. Is it ever intimidating for you? Uh, that's a good question. I the short answer is no, um, which I don't actually okay, why? know why. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, wait, why is that? Um, I had a wonderful mentor uh, by the a woman by the name of Joni Evans, and Joni was uh, and is she's a wonderful woman, but she was an agent. She used to be the president of Random House, and she was like the coolest cat on the block. And she brought her whole self to work all the time. She was funny and she had a big life herself and she traveled and she had wonderful relationships and she was, you know, just beloved by everyone. But she never, she never discounted who she was in that equation. And uh, funnily enough, my mother is the same way, like bring your whole self to work and 
then you'll have nothing to regret. So I was really lucky to be surrounded by incredibly strong women who were like that first wave of working moms. So they really took it in a very different way than women do now where it's a question. You know, my mom was always like, go be the best you can be. And then if something happens, then, you know, you don't leave anything on the table. So I think I approached my job that way. And then when I met Joni and I've been lucky enough to be at the ground floor of somebody's fame. So I now meet people who are very advanced in their careers and we have to figure out what their book is, what their challenge is, what their story is. But when you grow with somebody, it's a wonderful thing and that's a great journey to watch. So no, I also don't confuse their fame with my life. Uh Uh-huh. That's so important. I think a lot of people confuse their jobs with their life which is sort of what you're saying, yeah. that you have a life. Yes. You have an amazing job. I do, and my family's in New York, and I have siblings and a personal life. And I never, and probably because I grew up in New York, and this was a New York-based industry, I think the reason why I loved the book business was that it was inherent to New York. I didn't want to move to Los Angeles. I didn't want to be in entertainment. And I never wanted to be in an industry that I wasn't the home, it wasn't the home base. So, yes, you could be in the movie industry in New York, but it's not the home base. L.A. is the home base. Uh, You can be a tech guru, but you're going to spend a lot of time in San Francisco. (laughs) I wanted to spend a lot of time in New York. I've always been very close to my family, and I loved it. I loved that the book business was a New York business. It's also a business that I think is really kind to women. Publishing, I think, is kind to women. Um, And did you choose it uh, for that reason in particular? No, it was dumb luck. (laughs) Um, super dumb luck, but then it, it kept on opening itself up to me. And so why did, why did you choose it? And why was it dumb luck? Uh, there was a great woman, uh, in HR, which is becoming, uh, sort of more and more fascinating as we get into these bigger, bigger companies. HR plays a huge role in it. And we had this wonderful woman by the name of Pat Galloway at at uh, William Morris many years ago, almost like 17 years ago. And she was just like, you have to meet Joni Evans. And I was like, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to do books. I don't know. And literally the minute I met her, I was like, oh yeah, you're going to teach me something. I want to be with you. And it's similar to when I met my husband. Like you just sort of know the people who are going to affect you in some way. And I loved her. So yeah. Do you feel that people can choose mentors. You know, there's so much written about mentorship, and I've heard you on the the topic of mentorship. Um, What do you think? I think it's a complicated question. I think that it is very important to choose people you admire, choose people who have deep value systems that match with yours, not just because you admire what they do or not. I think that people walking into your office and being like, hey, can you mentor me is a very strange question because it's a very personal relationship. Um, But I do have people I work with that I would like to think I mentor and help and my door is always open. But I think it's much more, it's much less about what the person does and much more about who the person is. It is a, it's much more of a value proposition and you have to operate in the world in the same way. I was blessed with Joni Evans And my second mentor, who I still work with to this day, who I adore, is Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. And we found each other when Joni left um, William Morris. And she was our department head. And she really uh, taught me how to take my passion for lifestyle and cookbooks and fashion and 
all these types of illustrated books and make a career out of it. And what were those lessons? I'm, I'm curious because the notion of mentoring, I think sometimes mentoring means encouragement, telling mm-hmm. someone you can do it. And sometimes it's more practical. And it sounds like the type of mentoring you received might have actually been a little bit more practical. I think it was both. Um, I was never confused about either of their beliefs in me. Uh, which was incredibly, incredibly satisfying and important early on in my career. But then it was everything from like how to read a contract, what you're looking for, what you're not looking for, how do you communicate with different types of people, and also like real-time feedback, uh, which I believe is critical um, in going forward in a career. Because if you wait until like the two times a year you review someone, then it, it, it's, it doesn't quite work real-time feedback with a belief that everyone's going to mess up. You're never going to always be perfect. You're not going to do it right all the time. You have to be transparent. You have to be honest about when things go badly. And I'll always be in your corner. And I actually say this to my assistants now. I'll always be in your corner if you tell me first. Because then we can plan forward together. But, you know, this sort of like, oh, everything has to be perfect and all this pressure and you're only going to be mentoring me if I do things right. It, it doesn't prom- actually promote good working environments, which is about real-time feedback and being able to let go of things. I think letting go is so important. The people who I watch struggle are people who hold on to either the mistake that they made or they're worried about the mistake they're about to make. Without question. And, and that type of anxiety makes them unable to take risk and to really excel. It's very stifling. I, I agree. I think... You have to be able to let go of it because, again... Um, with caring at the same time, right? Right. Well, I think that people confuse letting go with somehow, like, putting it in the trash. It just means that it doesn't serve <laughs> you anymore. Like, it happened. You can't go back in time. Right. So what do we do now? Like, you know, it's not what happens. It's what happens next. Right. Um, and how do you effectuate it? And so have you had some really big mistakes that you had to get past? Okay. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Plenty, um, <laughs> sadly. No, um, I and, Get, tell and me by about the way, one. and still do, still do. Um, I think like what early, was one early in my career. Uh, there was a, a, a large client of the agencies, and um, who was in the book business and was about to do what was going to be a breakout book. Of course, we didn't know it at the time. And there were lots of people involved, lawyers and managers. And I think I was trying to please everybody all the time. I was trying to make everything okay. And I wound up not being very emphatic about a a hard line. So instead of being like, no, we'll never do this. I was like, well, you know, let me take it up the flagpole. Like, let me try and keep everyone happy. And it wound up really working against me, not actually funnily enough, being very direct and being like, that's never going to happen. And I wasn't confident enough at the time to do that. And the client wound up leaving. And it was so shocking to me, but it also showed me what an amazing organization I worked for, which is like, it only, it only matters if it's the same for everyone. So there are things we're never going to do. And that's true for anyone. If it's not, um, something that the person can live with, then it's okay. Then then you should... So they didn't uh, sort of hate you for losing the client? No, they didn't. Because, in fact, when you said, we aren't going to do this, you meant it and you were right. It alienated the client. Maybe there was a different way to go about it. But the result 
may have been different, but you still were right. Exactly. But I also had to, another kind of lesson is learn how to care about being right less. Yeah. Um, because it's actually not always about being right. Yeah. In fact, it's rarely about being right. Um, <laughs> and getting ahead of the client, getting ahead of the situation and be like, no, 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 but this is the right way to do it. Um, again, I think it's that perfectionist thing that I think helps you to succeed when you are sort of an assistant to an associate. But at some point when you're getting into different areas and management and uh, it's not about being right. It's not about uh, being perfect. It's about really sharing and communicating and letting go of things that aren't going to work. And also um, sticking to your guns and knowing that sometimes you fight the good fight and you lose and that's okay. You know, it's, it's a business of people. It's going to be in and out, but you have to always really invest in your home team. And I think that we at WME do that beautifully. I'm very proud of everyone in our departments and the people we raised. It's an extraordinary group of people. And I've had the occasion to, you know, to meet many of them. It speaks to a very supportive culture, which we read so much about the importance of culture and in a business like agenting that is so much about power and exhibiting power to have that support in the background must make all of you feel even more empowered. Absolutely. And in each show, I ask my guests to bring something that inspires them to read, to inspire others. And I think you've clearly been inspired <laughs> by, your, by your mentors and by the organization with in which you've worked. But what did you bring to read us today? Okay, I have to pull it up off my phone, which is kind of hilarious for a literary agent, but I'll just, <laughs> you know, I'll just own that. Um, Alice in Wonderland. I love Alice in Wonderland. Um, because I actually, I think all iterations of it are beautiful. The illustrated books, the actual book, the Robert Wilson show. So I've been obsessed with it pretty much my entire childhood and life. But why are you obsessed with Alice in Wonderland? Um, I love the sort of fantasy element of it, but also how, how sort of strikingly creative it is, but yet it's very, um, it's sort of grounded in reality. It's a, a fairy tale that you can find yourself in as a grown up all the time. I thought, I also love the Mad Hatter Tea Party, always have. Um, <laughs> so that makes sense with what I chose to do for a living. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of symmetry, but I do love it. Um, and so I'm going to read from when she finds the bottle. It was all very well to say, drink me. But the wise little Alice was not going to do that in a hurry. No, I'll look first, she said, and see whether it's marked poison or not. For she had read several nice little histories about children who had gone burnt and eaten up by wild beasts and other unpleasant things, all because they would not remember the simple rules their friends had taught them, such as that a red-hot poker will burn you if you hold it too long, and if you cut your finger very deeply with a knife, it usually bleeds. And she had never forgotten that if you drink from a bottle marked poison, it almost certain to disagree with you, sooner or later. However, this bottle was not marked poison, so Alice ventured to taste it, and finding it very nice. In fact, it had sort of a mixed flavor, cherry tart, custard, pineapple, roasted turkey, toffee, and hot butter toast taste. She soon, very soon, finished it all off. Coming from you, there's so much about that <laughs> that I find interesting. Ah. I don't think I've ever heard you string together foodie words in the way that Alice just did. <laughs> so that strikes me. But why that passage in particular to read today? 
Um, because I think you always have to, in, in jobs and in life, you have to uh, do the decision that's presented to you. So if there's something that says drink me or if there's a project that's like, I can't, you know, not do this or there's a trip that you're like, I must do. I think it's our responsibility as, as humans to take that step forward and just to constantly, you know, it's just one foot in front of the other. With that incredible wisdom from Alice, we're going to take a commercial break. This is Dana Cowan on Speaking Broadly with my guest, Andy McNichol. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today to southernfarmandgarden.com. Foodtank.com names Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, and today my guest is Andy McNichol, agent extraordinaire at William Morris Endeavor. We're going to talk a little bit about books. Good. Um, <laughs> you actually bring great books to life, and cookbooks today are still really, really vibrant. And it's probably a question you're sick of answering, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What do you see as the future of books? Well, the good news is I think books are very much in our future. Um, uh, unlike the music industry, which I think had like a category, you know, just decimation so much in, um, in the devices and how music was sold. I think that in books, the high end, which cookbooks would be like where things are hardcover over about $30 or these sort of great nonfiction narratives where you're getting them in paperback, paperback originals, the high and the low is always going to work. We might not have as many people buying books, but the aggregated community of people who do buy them is solid. So knowing that, I think publishers are being really smart, sort of 
more stringent about what they're buying, but I actually think it provides great books out there. So I'm actually kind of bullish on being in the book industry, which people nicely sometimes laugh at. But I actually (laughs) am very excited and proud and certainly in the times that we're living, whether it's to educate ourselves more or to escape more, um, I'm very confident about them. I mean, I read cookbooks still before I go to sleep. I find them the most wonderfully comforting, uh, deeply rooting uh, things to do. I have like a stack of them. So what's on your bedside table stack now? Melissa Clark's new book, which... uh, Dinner. Oh, God, it's so good. It's so good. Uh, Melissa Clark is a great recipe writer. She really knows what a home cook can cook and will want to cook and everything has that little something extra special this book it's harissa reading a lot about harissa (laughs) (laughs) um that um lucinda scalaquin's uh third cookbook in her mad hungry series which i also love and i think she's a wonderful writer voice in the space um, I actually keep cravings by my bed just because I think Chrissy's hilarious and super funny and um, Alex's new book um, that we are just putting to bed. So um, I well, think it's great for your husband that all the women, all the cookbooks on your bedside are by women. I know. <laughs> I know. And he's a good eater. So it, it's fun. And I like to cook at home. Um, I don't I don't not. I mean, I don't recipe test my clients recipes. I'm not Maria. But um <laughs> And I'm not a consistent cook in that way, but uh, I love them and I love riffing off of them and I love using them. And and again, I, I find them really comforting. Actually, I think um, Julia Tertian's book is actually good for that, just sort of playing around um, small victories. Does cooking from cookbooks make you a better agent for cookbooks? I think cooking makes me a better agent for cookbooks. I don't know if cooking from them... And by the way, I love having the book in the kitchen. There are plenty of people, you ask me what... You know, sort of the future is so BuzzFeed has Tasty and they Which have, are all videos and you have to live under a rock not to know that, but just to clarify. Yes, and they also have done this basically downloadable cookbook uh, off their site, no publisher, no anything, and it is selling very well to their audience, which is amazing and fine, and I'm always looking for new and interesting ways to distribute great content, and there is great content on that website. Um, but... Uh, it's just, it's an ebook. It's downloadable. It's, they'll send you a book. I actually like the whole process. I like the paper. I like the linen cloth. I like writing in the margins. And I think most people who buy cookbooks actually feel the same way. Right. There, there's something tangible and dreamy and it's not, it's not to efficiency. be satisfied, right? It's, it's not about exactly what I'm going to cook for dinner or how long does the potato cook? Because really you can find that out very quickly in a Google search. Many people who listen to this show might be interested uh, in writing their own cookbook. How, what advice do you have for them? I think having a point of view, um, whether it's a cookbook or any job that you are in, is really important. And a point of view that is only yours. Uh, because again, as I always say, there's only one way to roast chicken, you know, 425, <laughs> you're going to have to keep it there for about 40 minutes. Like that and, doesn't... And, and there's an entire industry that would right. dispute that. I know, but like, here's the <laughs> deal. One way to roast chicken people. I don't know. No, but like, here's the deal. The chicken is either cooked or not. So at the <laughs> end of the day, all of those, you know, sort of things in between are a point of view. Okay. So 
you, this person uses this spice, that person uses that, this person uses that. Like, have a point of view that really can only be yours. So people are coming to you for that chicken recipe, for that kind of feeling, for that kind of food, for that kind of um, storytelling, really, because people do do that, whether it's a cookbook or not a book. So really hone your point of view and sit in it and really grow in it. And I don't mean it has to be like fit on a pinhead. I mean, <laughs> like it has to be broad enough that you can grow into it. And that's the most important thing. And then find people who want to connect with that point of view. So how do you aggregate community? I think community is super important, whether it's podcasting, books, Instagram, uh, YouTube, TV, fill in the blank and all the Snapchat, all the things that are also yet to come. But find a point of view and find a community who wants to hear it. And then from there, those conversations will will begin to sort of weave a fabric. And all those listeners who want to find an agent, how do they find an agent? Well, I think they should probably, and I, and I say this a lot, they should find a community first okay. and connect with people who have, are like-minded and they can really hone that. Because once you aggregate, I think people mistake, in the beginning, agents a little bit for publicists. Like, well, how do I get my voice heard? Like, oh my God, like I want to publish this book and I want to do this, but people say my platform's not big enough. Well, how do I grow my platform? You know, it's an age-old question, chicken or the egg. You have to be intrinsically connected to a platform, by the way, agnostic to what it is, but a platform that actually showcases you at your best. And then an agent or in any category could help you take that and grow that. An agent cannot give you the desire to build that. That's an excellent distinction. But you brought up publicist versus agent, and then there's the versus manager. How are those three separated? I mean, they are and they aren't. I think every each person in that ecosystem, if they're good at it, knows the other person's job very well. Um, a publicist is out there to give you, to help you do things that are press-oriented, uh, forward-facing, um, television, magazines, uh, digital, but there's no sale involved. These are non-paid gigs. It's so that people can see you and into one way to grow your community is to actually have more of a vantage point and a larger platform or reach more people. So TV is always, you know, a great version for that. And digitally, you can do that on a day-to-day. Managers, I think, are also, you know, lifestyle managers are an interesting thing because I think they are wonderful spotters of talent and they are about the whole ecosystem versus agenting, which encompasses both publicity and managing, but it ultimately has to end in, there's an end goal. Mm -hmm. And I think we like to put together all of those things with an end goal. So whether it's a TV show or a book or a podcast or an event, now we are in the food event business, (laughs) um, it's driving towards an end. And again, that brings up the sort of train conductor metaphor, like we are going in one direction. Yeah, I'm gonna, after this, I think, well, you can have multiple hats, as you say, but train conductor, um, you know, is definitely one that you will will stay in my memory <laughs> from this. Um, so in order to be a great agent, because 
think people are searching for what it is that they can do in this world that connects to food. And I mm-hmm. think agenting is such an interesting intersection of the two. Like, you like food, but you are... I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not like a super You're foodie. Not, she's no. not a super foodie. I'm not. I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not. I mean, yeah. like, I like good food, but like, right. I'm not fancy. But, um, did your first job, for example, help lead you in this direction? What was your first job? Dana knows the answer to this. Uh, <laughs> I worked at Vogue. Uh, As did I. I know. So all good people. No, um, start from there now. Uh, I worked at Vogue and I was terrible at it. Uh, which I actually think was a blessing. I think it's really good to be really bad at something once in your life. But why were you so bad, Andy? I, I can't know. even imagine. I was. I Trust me. Like, my dearest friend still works there. She would concur. I was bad at it. Um, like, what were you bad at? Well, I was right out of college, and I think that I had sort of idolized the fashion industry and worked there, and I didn't, I didn't understand what they were building. Like, it all seemed very... Um, arbitrary to me like this department did something on this side and advertising did something on this side and I didn't understand where it met up and I was so low on the totem pole I was the assistant to the creative director so it also involved getting a lot of coffee and I was just so (laughs) confused and I didn't understand how all of the the sort of tangential things and the deep dives in different departments got together and made this like beautiful braid I just couldn't wrap my mind around it and it was and I was trying. That's the joke. I was trying to figure it out, and I just couldn't. But maybe that you just didn't need to think so hard. Maybe I, you just needed to get a lot of coffee. Maybe I needed to get a lot of coffee, but of course, I was very eager beaver, and <laughs> I just wanted to figure it out. But it's funny. When I came to William Morris, those different threads didn't seem arbitrary to me. So interesting. I almost had this, again, energetic pull to like, oh, this makes sense. Not because there was any more... Um, depth to my understanding but I understood the what we were building together ultimately what it would look like and I think for a uh, entry-level job where you're not getting paid that much in these industries whether it's book publishing or agenting or um, magazines or digital is a little different but in these sort of um, you know sort of businesses, you have to believe in what your boss is doing to actually stay there for that amount of money and really have a deep, I want to be part of this. And I think that's when it works. So I did not understand that at Vogue. Um, And that was a good thing. I think people have um, stopped understanding that you have to, you have to know if you're bad at something almost to be, know what, what else you could be good at. Well, certainly when you you know, went to WME and it felt immediately natural. You're like, ah, yeah, that sense of relief. And it's, you know, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. And it's also, that didn't mean, by the way, that I was running the company the next day, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, I think the speed of everything is, um, is also kind of working against these legacy businesses. Whereas, you know, you could put up a video now and have your own cooking show and have your own book deal in eight months. You can do that. And some people do it brilliantly. But there is a value in sort of apprenticeship and training and mentoring and all of these somewhat slower roads. And there is a value to that. And so I was comfortable, but I, you know, I worked as an assistant. I worked as an associate and somebody told me, oh my God, you know, you're going to be there 17 years. I was like, no, I'm 27 now. Do you feel that your road, once you got to 
WME has been very linear? Yes and no, because I think our industry is changing so much. So I don't think anyone gets the opportunity to be linear anymore. I don't think that any organization that thrives is can be linear. I think you have to be a lateral thinker. You have to see how things come together in a different way. But um, and So what, in what ways was it nonlinear? Like, what switch-ups did you have and changes that un- were unexpected? Or Well, I thought I was going to get into this business to represent Jimbo Lahiri. I thought I was going to get into this business to be like the literary of the literary, the best, like, and my co- dear colleague represents her and does it beautifully, and she's a wonderful writer. But I did not realize that that was not going to be my skill set nor what I'm good at because, you know, literary fiction takes a long time to bake and I'm a faster speed person. And so really being there at sort of the advent of the lifestyle sort of boom, you know, now it's so funny, but, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow selling that book was a huge watershed moment in terms of where lifestyle and food and fashion headed and how many spots on the New York Times bestseller list and the how-to miscellaneous are are really devoted to something that is relatively new. So you got a sort of being there at that and then watching that sort of grow and transform over time, a digital revolution, branding revolutions. Now, you know, you're as apt to represent a brand as a person because people's connection to brands are so deep. Um, the Instagram sort of phenomenon with food, being open to that, being open to different modes of distribution and communication, and then just continuing learning. Um, So in so much that I was an assistant and now I'm a partner, yeah, it's linear. There's, you know, you check off those boxes. Uh, But my job changes with every client I have. I get to borrow their dreams. Mm -hmm. I get to have their passion. So I I think I have the greatest job in the world. <laughs> I do. And I meet like great people. And even if we don't work together, I'm like, that is so wonderful. You're doing this in the world. You're a big reader. A big reader. I know. What are five books that you think people should be reading now? Like you're, it could be something you're reading now, but it could be something you read 10 years ago and you think is still relevant. We're quite obsessed with the new. Yeah, so we they, all are. <laughs> so, Okay, so I'll do one new one. Okay. Um, The Rules Do Not Apply, Ariel Levy. Yes. Is extraordinary. And I think because this is geared towards women, it's it's a very important book, uh, I think, for women to read. And how would you describe it? It is a memoir. And she's a New Yorker writer, so it is a beautifully written memoir about, you know, really difficult topics and, and also how to be an individual. Um, and and trust yourself. I was incredibly moved by it. I have given it to many friends. Uh, in that vein, um, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight by Alexandra Fuller, which is a spectacular memoir as well about growing up in South Africa. Um, these are both sort of like turning points of life books, which are which are deep and wonderful. And then to sort of Lighten the Load, I think Fates and Furies by uh, Lauren Groff is a great novel and really fun and sexy and, and, sh- and really a spectacular sort of contemplation of marriage. Um, a book, again, now we'll just go into that one, a book that's coming out in two weeks uh, by Danny Shapiro called Hourglass, uh, which is a memoir about marriage. 
and sort of uh, where that takes you. And I'm trying to think. I mean, I do read an awful lot. And I'm, I'm liking the Michael Chabon. That's in with my cookbooks by, um, by my bed, Moon Glow. I haven't read that. I'm looking forward to to reading that. I know. I was I was somehow, I don't know, resistant to reading it, but then everyone who read it loved it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'll read it too. I was like, oh, World War II again. I don't know. But it's great. It's great. And do you, what format do you read in? Do you read books? Hardcover I, books? Yeah, I do. And they're inconvenient, but amazing. Um, I like them. I, I'm, I'm a very tactile person. I admire people who can be minimalist so much. And I think they're like the chic is like the cover of the New York Times um, magazine had that like beautiful chic home in like New Mexico or Marfa or somewhere. And I was like, I wish, <laughs> but like I, I carry things. I like books and candles and uh, blankets. It's just, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I admire minimalism greatly, but I'm not streamlined at all. I tried for about, uh, you know, three hours to condoize just my books. It was, <laughs> it was impossible. It was I, because I, I too am a maximalist. I, I like things. I like touching things. I like being surrounded by things. Everything has an emotion attached to it for me. We could not be more similar on this. Yeah, everything has an emotion. Every book, where it is on the shelf. Absolutely. And who gave it to me and what state of mind I was in when I first got that book and who it reminds me of and who else should read it. And I, it doesn't even matter to me that I'm not going to ever read it again because it I is. just gave the book, actually another book, And Sons by David Gilbert um, to a friend and I had to like check through it. I was like, wait, 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 no, no, I write notes to myself in these books. I have to like just check if there's a note because I don't want to give it to you. If, like there's a personal note to me that I wrote to myself in the book because that would be awkward. So, yeah. Many of the books that you've chosen are memoirs because I think you're so interested in people and I do think one of the reasons you're the extraordinary agent that you are is because at your core, you really love people and their stories and understanding them and seeing beyond the haze, either of their celebrity, which does not impress you, or the haze of their confusion because you see something very true and simple at the, the core. On this show, I've created something called the Food Hall of Dames because I also love people and I love celebrating those who have contributed to this world that we live in in a special way. Do you have women who you'd like to nominate for the Food Hall of Dames? I feel like this is going to be so trite, and I'm sure somebody said it before, but Ina Garten. I mean... You're the first. Oh, yay! (laughs) Um, Because Ina is... Ina. I mean, there's no one better. Uh, Her editor laughs at me. I do not represent her, although I'd love to. Um... (laughs) That whisper was, I would love to. I know, so. I know. Uh, but she is a she is a huge, huge force um, and star. And she's unusual. Like, she does what she does so well. I always say, speaking of chicken recipes, this is another thing I say all the time. You could leave out the chicken, the recipe still works. It's, <laughs> she has recipe tested these recipes forever. She does it in her own kitchen. You want to know Jeffrey. I mean, the whole thing, there's all that um, 30 Rock, uh, where Liz Lemon is obsessed with Ina Garten, and then, of course, she guest stars. And I was like, yes, you understand Tina Fey the way most women feel about Ina Garten. She is the best friend, aunt, the Oprah of cooking. You just want to spend time with her. And, um, And the books are spectacular, and she still is 
the largest, like she was the largest selling cookbook of all last year. Ina's recipes are also magnificently tested. You're talking about Chrissy yes. Teigen and how those are all tests. She cooked through all of them. Ina's recipe testing methodology is flawless, yes. which creates that community you were talking about earlier where people trust her. They know that whatever they cook will come out right. Absolutely. As long as the mistake isn't theirs, as it's so often my own. But I know at least it's my fault, which is not true with all cookbooks. And Ina seems uncorruptible. She, she, she really, and you know, she's, I think she's doing another show soon on the Food Network, but she hasn't been doing new shows in, in years. And yet people have this almost sort of fanatic community because you literally, you're like, oh, I'll go to, with you to the train to pick up Jeffrey. Meanwhile, you don't know these people. <laughs> she called a book cooking for Jeffrey because she knows her community knows her husband's name. That is an extraordinarily odd thing. And it's, it's brilliant. And I think she continues to really grow. And I mean, listen, it's, it's hard, book six, book seven, book eight, uh, to try something new, to add a different element, to, to stick with the same team that you work with because it works so well, but also grow and change things up. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big Ina fan. You make an excellent point about how some brands or people seem to peter out because at book seven or eight, they've said it all. There really is nothing more. And we don't feel that way about Ina. But that, everybody, is our show for today. I am thrilled to have had Andy McNichol as my guest. You can follow my adventures at FW Scout if you want to see a lot of food porn, or you can follow me at Speaking Broadly if you'd like to see the lessons from all the women who have preceded Andy on the show, and Andy as well. All the shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. They're on iTunes and Stitcher. I'd love it if you would subscribe, and I'd love some feedback. Ask me questions. Suggest guests. Um, You can suggest people for the Hall of Dames. I'd love to hear that. And then another question. Are you a Heritage Radio Network member yet? I think you should be. Membership not only supports the production and the broadcast of the show, but also comes with perks. All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. Perfect to talk about this with Andy McNichol on the show and all the great books she told us about today. Join us on April 12th at Three's Brewing at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with the host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. Taiwan is having such a moment in restaurants. The chefs cooking Taiwanese food are extraordinary. I'm so excited about Kathy's book. Meet other members, snag a copy of The Food of Taiwan, and enjoy some beer from Heritage Radio Network's business member threes. Donate at heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate to get your exclusive invite today. I want to thank Andy for coming on. I want to thank David Tadashore, my great engineer, and I want to thank Molly Phillips for her guest listenership today. Have a great week and I'll hear you next Wednesday. Thanks 
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.